Well, good morning. Let's come on in and find our seats, all six of us. <laughs> Charles called uh, late this week and mentioned that he was likely going to be snowed in uh, as of Wednesday or Thursday, they had four feet at a minimum and spots of eight feet deep. And he didn't think they were going to be able to get out. So he asked if I could cover Sunday school for him. We are not going to be in Leviticus. Um, Terry called on Friday saying, do you know what you're doing for Sunday school so that I can put it in the bulletin? And I did not. And so uh, we're going to try something today that is perhaps going to be a little ambitious for one class. All we have is one class because I certainly hope that Charles is going to be back for next week. This summer, the uh, pastors here have decided to do uh, what they're going to call the grab bag. There's going to be a number of different topics that are going to be covered over about a 10-week period over the summer. And so uh, in the vein of one of those topics, uh, that's what we're going to look at today. So today, uh, one of the topics we're going to do the, over the summer is why we are premillennial. Now, I didn't want to get into that one, uh, so today we're going to cover why are we cessationist. Now, that is cessation as in stopping, not secession as in leaving the country or leaving the state. This isn't going to be a, a political statement here. This is going to deal with the subject of spiritual gifts and do all of the spiritual gifts that were present in the first century continue until Christ returns or were some of them uh, special for the first century with the early church. And so, uh, if you have your handout, we're going to look first at what are spiritual gifts just briefly. I know that this is a topic that most of us are fairly familiar with, Spiritual gifts, there's not a single comprehensive list. And so it's not like there are 12 spiritual gifts and you have one or more in some mixture of them. You'll find partial lists in Romans 12, verses 6 through 8, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 8 to 10, and then again in 28 to 30, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, and then 1 Peter 4, 10, and 11. 1 Peter is the most general of those. It basically divides spiritual gifts into two categories. You have gifts of speech and you have gifts of service. Now, the most uh, definitive treatment of the topic of spiritual gifts you'll find in 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14. Now, some of you may think, wait a minute, isn't 1 Corinthians 13 the great love chapter? Well, it is. And it is also right in the middle of dealing with the topic 
of spiritual gifts because love determines how those gifts are used. Um, Paul starts off in, in, in chapter 13, if I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but I do not have love, I'm just a noisy gong, a loud cymbal. So 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 will be your most definitive statement as to why the gifts exist, how they're distributed, and how to use them. Spiritual gifts, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 7, 11, and 18, are distributed to individual believers by the Holy Spirit as he desires. So go ahead, since we haven't turned anywhere yet, let's flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And again, I expect that most of this is going to be review, at least here in the beginning. So 1 Corinthians 12, 7. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. This has gone back, in fact, go back to verse 4. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. And so to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Drop down to verse 11. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Verse 18, but now God has placed the members, this is where he's, he's talking about, he's comparing using the analogy of a body as to the, the body of Christ. And just as a human body has many different parts that are not the same, that do not have the same purpose, yet they're all in the same body in uh, Chapter 12, verse 18, but now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. So the idea is that upon redemption, the believer is given specific abilities that help him to fill his place in the body, in both the body at large and the local assembly. So you're going to have those who are gifted in certain areas, those gifts are given by God, they are for the common good, and they are, uh, just, again, as God would have it, God places people where they are. So each one of us is here by God's design. If you're a member of this church, it's by God's design that you're here. And each of us has a specific part to play in this assembly, you're going to have some who are teachers, you're going to have some who are pastors, you're going to have some who are gifted in service, you're going to have some who are gifted in counseling and exhortation, you will have some who are gifted in mercy, you'll have some who are gifted in giving, and there's all kinds of different ways how people fit in. And the body needs every part to do its part. And so whatever your gift is, and I realize that to a great degree here, I am preaching to the choir. I look around in the room, and I can see a number of folks who you, have, you are plugged in, you are using your gifts 
in the ministry here of this church. Now, the gifts, again, are specifically intended for the edification of the body. And that's an important point. Your spiritual gift isn't about you. Your spiritual gift is how you help to edify the other parts of the body here. That's why 1 Corinthians 13 exists. Part of the problem, one of the problems that was present in Corinth was they didn't know how to get along in church. There was a lot of um, me in their use of spiritual gifts. It was really focused on them. Um, and so Paul spends a lot of time uh, dealing with that issue. Your gift is not about you. It is about others. And in fact, chapter 14 is geared largely as to how do you conduct an orderly church service. Church services in the first century were not like ours today. Keep in mind that in the first century, the Bible was the Older Testament. You were just starting to have the letters, uh, the Gospels. You were just starting to have Paul's epistles being, being circulated, and none of that had actually been entirely compiled. And so their Bible did not look like our Bible. God was still distributing information by revelation. God was speaking to men, and they would pass along what God said to believers. And so it was very different than it is today. And that's what, in fact, that is one of the reasons why this issue of cessationism versus continuationism is an issue. And so you'll find in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, 13, the whole chapter, in, verse, in chapter 14, verses 12 and 26, that spiritual gifts are for the edification of the body. They're for edification for others. And so, over time, there has risen a dispute as to how to deal with certain of the gifts. There is no question that these gifts existed in the early church. There's no doubt about that. If you read the book of Acts, you will find that there is direct revelation given to individuals. You will find that there were signs and wonders and miracles that were being performed by a number of people, and not all of them were apostles. For instance, when you get into um, Paul and Barnabas uh, on the, their missionary journey, their first missionary journey, you will see that there were signs and wonders being done by their hands. It was not just Paul. Stephen was not an apostle. He was one of the first deacons. And yet in Acts chapter 6, we'll find that Stephen was performing signs and wonders. And so it wasn't simply the apostles that were doing these things in the early church. And so sometimes you'll hear, although this is not a biblical term, but you will hear sometimes that 
the, the gifts that are disputed are referred to as sign gifts. And you'll see that that would include prophecy, healings, miracles, knowledge, and tongues. Again, no question that those were present in the first century. The question becomes, were those um, normative for the church at large in all times, or were those signs and wonders that were accompanying the new covenant as it was established in the first century? That's the dispute. And there are good, godly men on both sides of this issue. Um, this is not something where we need to be dividing. This is, this is a family discussion for the most part. Now, there's a lot of um, teachings that if you take an extreme, extreme view, you can get out of orthodoxy. That applies to both sides of this issue. That's not just those who say that we think the sign gifts continue. That can be just as true for those. Um, there are, I saw an allegation, frankly, I've never heard it before, that, well, uh, all of the spiritual gifts are over and done. Yes, ma'am. Okay, the question is, uh, how does knowledge fit in with the sign gifts? And what that was talking about, that was talking about specific knowledge, and it would be more to like knowledge of the mysteries, things that had pre been previously hidden in the Old Testament and that now God is making manifest. That's a good question. Now, if you take the stance that all spiritual gifts have been discontinued, you've run foul because there are still gifts that are present and in use. And in fact, not everybody in here, as is, 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 is you look around the room, not all of us are gifted the same. And that becomes pretty evident. When you try to do something uh, in the church as a matter of service, and perhaps that is not how you are gifted, you can feel like a fish out of water. There are some people in this room who, if, if there is a problem, they are there. They have the gift of service. But boy, I tell you what, you put them up front here, and they're going to be a fish out of water. They're, you're not going to find them teaching. That's not how they're built. And there's nothing wrong with that because God has gifted them as he wants. And so that's not a problem. Now, one of the things that we've got to be able to make sure that we have, we need to be gracious to those who hold a different opinion here. Now, sometimes you can have um, a view because you're a heretic. That's possible. But that's not the normal. A lot of times it could be because someone is ignorant. If you're a new believer, um, I remember, and I wasn't a new believer. I can remember when we first started coming here, um, I was talking with a couple of the pastors in the office, just uh, talking about something that we had just attended, and um, I made mention of something, and they looked at each other and said, 
covenant theology. What's that? I had never heard the term before. I'd been a Christian for probably 25 years, at least. And I'd never heard that term before. And so the whole idea about dispensationalism and covenant theology, I was utterly ignorant of the terms. And so sometimes it's a matter of education. Sometimes it's a matter of maturity. You just need to, uh, to work through those things. And so again, just because we have a difference of opinion doesn't automatically mean that somebody's in danger of not being in the kingdom, all right? This is one of these issues. So, what is continuationism? A continuationist holds that all of the spiritual gifts that were present in the first century that you would find specifically in the book of Acts are still valid today and that the church today still has access to all of those gifts. Now, as in most view, there is going to be a spectrum as to how that plays out. And you will have some who are on one end of the spectrum and others who are on the other end of the spectrum. And as often things happen, those who hold opposite views, if you're toward the middle, there's not a tremendous amount of difference. In fact, there are a number of people who would say that they are continuationist, and yet in practice, they are cessationist in practice because they would not hold to much of what is put forward today as what represents a spiritual gift. We'll get into that here in a moment. If you hold that the gift of prophecy still exists today, and that, in fact, God is speaking to individuals with messages that are in addition to Scripture, that are to be held on the same level as Scripture, that is heresy. That's not accurate. We have a completed canon. God has spoken, and we have his word, and it is it has everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. Now, there are many who would be continuationists who do not agree with what many of these gifts have become. So, for instance, when you look at the issue of tongues, when you go to Acts chapter 2 and we see tongues being introduced on the day of Pentecost, we see that each one of those tongues was actually a known language. It was not just some ecstatic speech. These were languages that the people who were saying the words didn't know what they were saying, but others who were present did. And so you had Jews who were gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost that were from around the known world at the time, and they're looking going, why is it that I hear somebody talking in my language, especially when this guy is an uneducated fisherman? There were 120 people gathered in the upper room in Acts chapter, just prior to Acts chapter 2. And all of a sudden, they're speaking all kinds of languages. They have no idea what they're speaking. And what were they saying? In fact, flip over to Acts chapter 2. This one's good enough to look at with our own eyes.
Now let's start in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? That was the polite way of saying, These guys are the hillbillies. They don't know anything, and yet here they are talking in our language. And how is it that we hear them each in our own language to which we were born? And it lists a whole bunch of them. Uh, verse 12, and they were continued, they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They're full of sweet wine. And Peter says, Nah, he steps up. And the guy who just weeks before denied three times that he knew Jesus, he couldn't even stand up to a servant girl. Now he takes center stage and he begins to preach boldly. And so, and he goes, look, these guys aren't drunk. This is similar to what Joel said, and he builds from there. Now, that is the original use, the original appearance of tongues. You will find that in Acts chapter 10, when the gospel is preached to Gentiles, and Gentiles come to faith, and the same thing happens to the Gentiles. You'll find it in Acts chapter 19 when the, uh, the gospel is preached to a group of men, a dozen men, who were still following the baptism of John. They hadn't heard of Christ. They hadn't heard of the Holy Spirit. They hadn't heard of any of those things. And when they came to faith, then the same thing happened to them. Now, there's two ways that you can look at why that's happening. One is that that is now the norm. When a person comes to Christ, that is what they should expect. The other way of looking at that is that because it had happened with the Jews where the Holy Spirit was being poured out on believers who at that point were Jewish, then that was God's stamp of approval that the Gentiles were on the same footing as believing Jews. So believing Gentiles and believing Jews, there was no difference. That's why you see throughout Paul's epistles, he, he, he goes, there is no class distinction. There's no difference between slave and free. There's no difference between male and female. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. There's no class division in the church. You have those who are redeemed and it doesn't matter where they came from. It doesn't matter what social standing they have. In Christ, all are equal. And so that would be the other way of looking at these things. And so for a continuationist, they look, no, that is normative for the church. Now, prophecy in the first century absolutely included 
forth telling. Now, I'm sure that you, we've heard this before, that prophecy has two aspects. You have foretelling, which is telling of things that are future. This is God pulling back the curtain, so to speak, and letting us see behind the curtain as to things that are coming. The other common form of prophecy is foretelling, that it is not the future. This is just proclaiming the truth of God. And in that sense, if it is simply proclaiming God's truth, that absolutely still continues. Absolutely it does. It's happening right now. It's proclaiming the truth of God. Anytime that you proclaim the gospel to an unbeliever, that is foretelling of the power and the gospel of God and of Christ. And so, again, uh, tongues has morphed into something that, frankly, the first century would look at and go, what is this? I'm sorry, but laughing and, you know, being slain in the spirit and falling on over and looking like you've had three or four too many, that does not bring praise to God. What are you going to think if you walk into a group of people? I, I hope you don't hang out in bars. I hope you don't. I don't know if you have at any point in your life. If you walk into a church service and it looks like a big drunk where people are falling all over and acting bizarrely, that's not something that brings honor to God. In fact, Paul talks about that in chapter 14 in 1 Corinthians. He says, look, if you act like that and an unbeliever walks into your, group, into your meeting, they're going to think you're nuts. They're going to think you're crazy. How does that bring glory to God? Whereas all of a sudden, rather than people acting like that, people are proclaiming the truth of God then they'll walk in and they'll say, you know what, God's in this place because they hear his word. And so again, you've got all of these things, miracles. Do you find it interesting, I do, that on at least two occasions, Jesus healed somebody and then what did he tell them? Don't tell anybody. When the disciples figured out that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, what did he tell them? Don't tell anybody. When Peter, James, and John come back down from the Mount of Transfiguration, what did Jesus tell them to do? Don't tell anybody. Now, do you notice that when people talk about having the gift of healings, it's always in someone else's presence. In fact, those people get brought to them, and again, people got brought to Jesus. But the fact of the matter is, where would Jesus be today if he were here? If he's going to go heal somebody, where would he go? Oh, he'd be to the hospital, he'd be to the children's hospital, he'd be to an AIDS clinic. How do you know that? Because who did he heal? 
He healed lepers. That hadn't happened before. People who were born blind, he made to see. That had never happened before. It's not, you know what, I've got this pain in my back, and, you know, and I'm healed now. And so, again, most of these things can't be verified. They're, you know, and they're not the hard, they're not the hard cases. And so, again, much of what is peddled today under the idea of the special gifts, frankly, uh, is not, doesn't look anything like the first century. And they would also dispute that there's no clear biblical edict that says that any of these gifts have gone away. And so that's continuationism. Now again, there are some godly men who hold to these things. This is not simply charismatics and Pentecostals. There are some good men on this side too. So what is cessationism? A cessationist holds that certain of the gifts were restricted to the early church in the first century. And so again, the, the gifts that are normally on that list, prophecy, healings, miracles, knowledge, tongues. And cessationists would usually say that these gifts were phased out with the completion of the New Testament. God doesn't need to speak personally with new revelation to people today because we have a completed Bible. This is a Bible that is sufficient as it is. And the case is often made by them that the gifts today that would you know, fall into prophecy and healings and miracles and knowledge and tongues are corrupted and they're just not the same as they were in the New Testament. Now, normally... When someone claims to be an apostle, and we need to go back, what was, what is an apostle? What was an apostle? It's a sent out one. And the idea that the apostles, you have large A apostles, and who do those, who were the large A apostles? Those were those, those were the twelve we'll take Judas Iscariot out, and we'll put, we can put Matthias in. And then there was Paul, who was one born late as one out of time, uh, would be the 13th. And so here you have these men, and what were the characteristics, what were the requirements to be an apostle? You were doing one just a second ago, John. Yeah, they were, they were those who had seen Jesus. Now, Paul comes in late on that list, but he, yet he qualifies because... He saw the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, right? All these other guys, they had walked around with Jesus. Uh, most of them had spent three years with Christ. And so they knew him well. They had seen all of his miracles. They had heard his teaching. Those are the big A apostles. Now today, there are some who claim to be Apostles, that there has been an, a, um, a carried down list, that there has been a succession of apostles. So, for instance, the Pope, of the, the, the main guy in the Catholic Church, 
they hold that he is a direct descendant from Peter as far as being an apostle. And thereby, he claims apostolic authority. Now, the apostles had special authority. Most of the New Testament was written by apostles with three exceptions. Mark was not an apostle. Luke was not an apostle. Jude was not an apostle. All the rest of them, James, Peter, Paul, John, Matthew, they were all of the 12. And so um, those today who lay claim to being an apostle usually also lay claim to a fact that they have some special form of authority that a regular Tom, Dick, or Harry in the church does not possess. Even a regular pastor does not possess. And so somehow the, the, you know, they, have, they have more authority in the church than others. Now, let's look at the historical view. And, and by this, I mean, let's step back for a moment and look at history over a timeline. There are three general periods where you see miracles and signs and wonders concentrated, biblically. The first occasion you're going to find that is with Moses and Joshua. Now, Charles just got done going through Exodus. In fact, he just covered the plagues here in the main service just a few weeks ago. The plagues were an, exam uh, an example of signs and wonders, right? Moses comes in and says, uh, there's trouble coming. And all of a sudden you have the blood being turned to water. You've got gnats. You've got uh, locusts, you've got hail, you've got all these different things, and then uh, after you get partway in, God starts making a distinction, right? This is going to happen to Egypt, but it's not going to happen in Goshen where the Israelites are. You have the Passover, and you have the death angel comes, and the firstborn of the people, the firstborn of the cattle in Egypt, somebody's dying that night. And yet that did not happen in Goshen because the children of Israel had slaughtered the Passover lamb. They had put the blood on the doorposts and on the lintel and the angel passed over them and there was no such death in theirs. You had the parting of the Red Sea. You had the parting of the Jordan River. You had the manna in the wilderness. You had water coming from a rock in the wilderness. There's all kinds of things going on there. And so you have a period of about... 60, 70 years where you have a lot of things happening that are outside the normal realm of activity. And then you don't see anything until you get to the time of Elijah and Elisha. And then all of a sudden, you have some things that are kicking back up again. You've got lepers being healed. You've got... Um, Provision for a widow in Zarephath, where all of a sudden she's got oil filling up everything in her household for her provision. You have Elijah withholding the rain for three and a half years. Now, why predominantly were those miracles happening? That's not a rhetorical question. 
Okay, so it's to confirm that it's God's providence. What else? Say it louder, John. Yeah, God is giving them examples. Remember, Jesus uses some of these miracles when during his ministry when he says, look, there were a lot of lepers in Israel, but who did, who did Elijah heal? Who did Elisha heal? He healed Naaman, a Syrian, a foreigner. There were a lot of widows. And yet, he goes to Zarephath, which was up in Lebanon. She wasn't Jewish. But God was providing for her. What was the implication? You guys aren't worthy of this because of your sin. Your sin is separating you from God. When Elijah comes in and says, there's not going to be rain for three and a half years, what was that? That was the carrying out of God's word in Leviticus and Deuteronomy when he says, when you sin, I will, I will start tightening the screws. I will bring, I will withhold the rain. I will bring famine. I will bring pressure on you to try to put you back where you should be, to where you would bow your knee to me and obey and do what you should. And so the, the, the time there with Elijah and Elisha predominantly is judgment coming on Israel to try to get them to turn back before God drops the nuclear weapon, which was exile. Then there's another break. And the next time you start to see a whole bunch of new things happen is in the first century A.D. with Christ and the apostles and those of that same generation. So when you talk about the apostles, that's where you can include, because they are in the same period of time, that's where you can include Stephen and Agabus and uh, Philip's daughters who were prophetesses and Barnabas and all of these other guys who are doing signs and wonders. And, um, okay, so stop. Why all of the signs and wonders in the time of Moses? Okay, so the Jews will believe, right? Moses goes to, when, when God speaks to Moses, and Moses says, ah, why are they going to listen to me? I'm a nobody. I've been, I've, been, I've been working sheep and goats out in the desert for 40 years. Why would anybody listen to me? What's that in your hand? It's a rod. Okay. It's my rod now. It's the rod of God. And with this rod, you're going to be able to do all kinds of things. And why are you going to do them? Because I'm fixing to do something new. You're going to get the law. I'm establishing you as not just a nation. I'm establishing you as my nation. And so I'm going to do these things. I'm going to destroy Pharaoh because he's arrogant and he stands against me because he thinks he's God. And I'm going to judge his gods and I'm going to make my people out of you. In the time of Jesus, why do we have all the signs and miracles? What did Jews look for? What did they require? What did they demand, actually? 
What sign do you give us that we should believe you? Said to the man who had raised people from the dead, healed lepers, given sight to the blind, and all of that, and you're still asking. In fact, what did he say then? Believe. Believe from what I'm telling you, and if you're not going to listen to what I'm telling you, believe for what you've seen. People don't do that. People can't do that. And so the idea here is that these signs were to show that God was at work. He's establishing his new covenant in Christ's blood. And this is establishing, number one, you should be listening to the apostles because they've been sent by God. They haven't been sent by men. They've been sent by God. And they are carrying God's word. And you need to listen to them. Uh, as it was said, I believe it's in Thessalonians, you, you accepted this not as the word of men, but the word of God. So, this in no way restricts God from intervening as he sees fit and when he wants. So, for instance, Enoch. Enoch wasn't, he's out walking with God one day. God says, you know what, we're closer to my place than yours. Why don't you just come with me? And Enoch does not go through death. God can do that. He can do it when he wants because he's God. And no one can tell him what to do. Noah and the ark, where God saves eight people on a ship that takes 120 years to build. If you've ever gone, if you haven't gone to the ark exhibit in, in uh, Kentucky, go. It is incredible. And then you can see that, you know what, this guy didn't have Makita and Ryobi. And you can see why it took 120 years to build this ship. It is the largest wooden structure in the state of Kentucky. With all the exhibits, you can still put 10,000 people, according to the fire code, inside that building. So don't worry. There was plenty of room for giraffes and, and all the animals, because there's only eight people on board. So you have Noah, you have Abraham, the, the miracle of, of God opening Sarah's womb when she's old, and Abraham being old. That's no problem for God. Daniel, and, and the, 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 the things that God did with Daniel, he can do that because he's God, and he's not restricted. Events in the book of Revelation, there are going to be, uh, there's going to be two witnesses in Jerusalem during the tribulation time. And they're going to be able to stop the heavens. It's not, they're going to be able to stop the rain. They're going to be able to do all kinds of different things that are outside the normal realm of what, what's, what's normal. And so God is still able to do all of those things. Okay, so does that make sense? Signs and wonders don't happen all the time. They haven't throughout human history. So, we've got 15 minutes left. So why are the pastors of this church cessationist? Now, I did not ask them. So, in one way, I am speaking for them. Brian is laughing because he has no idea what I'm about to come up with. Part <laughs> 
<laughs> First of all, Ephesians 2.20. Let's flip there. We're going to go to all four of these. Ephesians 2.20. We'll start in verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And the idea here is that you have a, the foundation of the church is built on the apostles and the prophets. Now, how many times do you lay a foundation? Once. You don't have a foundation at, at all different levels of the building. And so the idea here the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, that's where our Bible, our New Testament, came from. And so we have the foundation that has been laid, and we have, had, we have the faith that has been once delivered to all the saints. That's in Jude 3. And so we have what we need. Second, flip over to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. And in the Greek, there's actually no pr uh, pronoun there. It is, there's no definite article. It's in Son. He has spoken to us in Christ, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And it goes on and talks about Christ being the visible um, aspect of God. Now the idea here is that God in the past has spoken through the prophets. Now he has spoken through Christ. What's the, what is the implication? God's finished the message. God has spoken. When we hold his word, we are holding his words written down so that we have them in perpetuity. And so um, my father, my parents, did not start with the New American Standard. I grew up with the King James. That goes back to 1611. The Geneva Bible would go back a little further than that. Before that, you would have the Vulgate. Before that, you had to go back to the original languages, and you would have to go back to the scrolls and all of that because God's Word wasn't all gathered together in one place. We have that now. God's final Word is in Christ. We don't need to be looking for anything else. Now, 
the fact that God is not giving new revelation today, does that mean that God is not speaking to people today? John, you're shaking your head no. Why is that? <laughs> actually, actually it is, but it isn't. What is one of the primary ministries of the Holy Spirit? He is to, he's to guide us into all the things that Jesus taught, and he is going to illumine our minds as to what Scripture means. The Holy Spirit is who? He's God. So the idea that God is bringing something to my mind does not mean that it has to be, in fact, it's not going to be new revelation. What is it going to be? It is going to be tied directly to this. You want to hear the Word of God? Read your Bible. If you want to hear the voice of God, read it out loud. Probably the best Sunday school class I've ever taught was the last lesson in the book of Hebrews. Does anybody remember the last lesson from the book of Hebrews? Do you remember what we did? I read the book in its entirety. It took 51 minutes. Jesus would have read it better because he would have known exactly what intonation to use where to put emphasis. But that's what he would have said because that was what is written. And so again, Hebrews, God's final word is Christ. Look at the next chapter. We'll just start in verse 1. We're going to concentrate on 3 and 4. Verse 1, chapter 2. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Here's where we're starting. After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So there are three groups of people. There is Christ on the one end. There is us on the other end, with whom, by the way, the writer of Hebrews includes himself. He puts himself in the last group, the us. And then there's this middle group. Those who heard the Lord and then spoke that word to us. That's the, middle, that's the apostles. That is the time of, of the apostles and those in their generation. And the writer of Hebrews links the signs and the wonders and the miracles and those gifts of the Holy Spirit to that group. He doesn't link them to the us. He links them to those who heard the word from Christ. Second Peter, go a few pages to the right. Second Peter, chapter 1. 
We'll start in verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So the idea here is that the word of Christ, the word of God, is what gives us what we need pertaining to life and godliness. You don't have to go anywhere else. It's in God's word. So what God requires of us, God also tells us. He gives us what it is we need to know. And the, one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is bringing to our members the thing that Jesus taught. Now, here's, this one is really the prime reason why I am a cessationist. Because the idea that we need to have a further word from God undermines the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. I hold in my hand the Word of God. He doesn't need to speak additionally to this. The Holy Spirit may bring to my mind different ways how to understand this, and He may bring to my mind different ways in which I may apply this. But this is sufficient. It is enough. I don't need anything else beside this. I don't need to add anything to it. And so anything that we put into that mix that says, you know what? You need to have a word from so-and-so. That undermines the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture. Now, our natural inclination is to think that, you know what, if you have the signs and the wonders and the miracles, then people are going to believe. Anybody think that? Good. Why not? Jesus had something to say about this issue, right? Do you remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus? If you don't, let's go to Luke chapter 16. You've got a rich man and you've got poor Lazarus. Lazarus who lives in squalor. The, the animals, the dogs come and lick his wounds. He dies. He's carried away to the bosom of Abraham. The rich man dies. He gets buried. And he's in Sheol, he's in Hades, and he looks up and he's in torment. And he sees Lazarus reclining in the bosom of Abraham. Oh, Father Abraham, send him down here that he can dip his finger in water and put it on my tongue because I'm in torment. No, can't do that. There's a great gulf fixed between you and us so that you can't come here, we can't go there. Go down to verse 27. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him 
to my father's house. Send Lazarus to my father's home because I've got five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he, the rich man, said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and to the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. How many people, did Jesus rise from the dead? Yeah, he did. Then how come everybody's not a believer? Why, why is it that after three years of a very public ministry, very public, why is it that after healing people of every conceivable disease, and illness, raising people from the dead, four days dead. After four days, guess what? You start to stink. That's one thing that dead people do. They stink. About the only thing they can do. He raised people from the dead. And yet, after three years, how many people believe in him? 120. The people in the upper room. How many people did he heal? A lot more than that. And even people that he healed didn't believe him. So please don't get sucked into this idea that, you know, somehow, you know, we need the, 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 the really bizarre and the really out of the ordinary that'll make people believe. People in the time of the tribulation are going to know who's responsible for bringing the judgments that they are under. They're going to know it's from God. And they're going to know why. And yet, what, what will they not do? They will not bow their knee. Even knowing that judgment is coming and why it's coming, they still will not bow their knee. So again, please don't fall into this idea that somehow we need the signs and the miracles today because then people would believe. You know who's going to believe? Everybody God's called. He's going to get every one of them. And he won't lose one. Regardless of persecution. Regardless of still having a sin nature. If I could lose my salvation, I would. Absolutely. So would you. But that's not going to happen. Because whom God rescues, he's got. And he won't lose any. And you can go to 1 Corinthians 13. Now some will go to verses 8 to 10 and talk about, you know, there's different verbs here and there's different... Uh, voices and tenses. Um, the big thing why verse, 1 Corinthians 13 is there is because people need to know that your gift is not about you. Your gift is to be used sacrificially on your part for the benefit of others. That's the predominant thrust of that chapter. 
And so it's not about garnering attention. Again, Jesus wasn't doing miracles for attention because, ah, hi, I'm, I'm, you're a leper. I'm going to heal you. Now don't tell anybody. All right. Questions. I realize that was somewhat drinking from a fire hose. Questions from anybody? You just want to stop, don't you? Right, in fact, it was the leper. So the question is, you know, why is it that Jesus would heal somebody and then tell them, don't tell anybody? Um, in that case with the leper, it was go to the priest and show him that you've been cleansed, but don't tell people how. Um, and in, in, in a number of ways, uh, it was because he wasn't ready for people to know who he was. And so, yeah, you can tell people about the Mount of Transfiguration after, but not before. Most of them told anyway, exactly. Okay, so the comment is, you know, you know, she, she, uh, Laura had heard that, you know, this didn't happen because it would interfere with Jesus' teaching ministry because there's going to people, be people coming in from all over the place. Jesus himself said that, right? After he feeds the 5,000, then he comes back and says, okay, well, why are you guys here? You got fed yesterday. You're ready for to get fed again today. And so um, he also, uh, you'll read in, in places where, the people wanted to take him and make him king. That's not why he was here. He wasn't here to be made king. He was here to hang on a cross and to be the, the propitiation and the atonement for sin. Those were at odds with each other. Now, is Jesus going to come back as king? Absolutely. When he comes the second time, It'll be as king, and it will be to rule as king. And he will rule on this planet with a rod of iron. And he will bring judgment to those who require it. Any other questions? Marianne. Okay, so the question is, uh, each member is to do their part. How do we encourage people to do their part? First of all, uh, one way is to fill your part. That's one way. Now, often there's a question, well, gee whiz, how do I know how God has gifted me? Got news for you. It's not hard to figure out. What are you good at? 
what moves your heart? And you want to know the, a, a good test to, to, to put to this? When you are acting in accordance with your gift, it feels as nothing. If it costs you something, what do I have that I haven't received? If it costs you your time, it's not a burden. I look around and I see a number of you who serve and serve and serve. And yet if I were to ask you if it was wearying to you, you would look at me like I was asking an offensive question. And so if you have someone who is gifted in teaching, then you'll have somebody who's willing to pay the price in order to teach well, but it would also be something where it's, the points are able to be communicated and understood and it's not awkward. You all have been very, very patient with me over the years. You've allowed me to uh, learn how to do some different things. And that's because you're gracious. So that is an easy way. If someone looks and suggests to you, in fact, you know what? You won't wait for someone to ask. You'll just be doing. Do you know how we find deacons in our church? Primary way. What is it? You look for people who are deaking. I know, Dave gets to make up words every once in a while. I, I'm going to lay claim to that privilege as well. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean, did y'all hear that? Okay, so the, the comment Dave is making is that you, you see a need, you meet it. And within your abilities, um, I think trouble starts to happen when um, one particular gift seems to be very, very attractive. And you know what? I would love to be able to do that. 
without waiting to see, has God actually equipped me to do that? And so um, don't go with what God has given you. If that means it's going to be standing up in front, then it'll be standing up in front. I know that some of you, um, without you know, naming any names, I know exactly who I'm looking at here in the room for this, there are a number of you who just serve and serve and serve, and you would be just fine without ever having a single bit of limelight on you. You would be just fine with that. And that is a beautiful thing, because what's it about? It's not about me. It's about serving the king, and however that, and however that looks. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you that you choose those you're going to save and those you are going to redeem. And then you equip them so that they would be useful in your service. And you choose where to put us and, and, and the roles that, that, that you want us to fill. And thank you that you figure all that out for us. We're not left to guess. We're not left to, to, you know, to try to figure all of that out on our own. And Father, thank you that your spirit superintends all of this. And we're grateful to you. We're grateful that you allow us to be in your service, that you adopt us as your children, that you redeem us from being your enemies to being your family, that we will no longer face you as judge, but we face you as dad. Help us in these things and help us as we, as we encounter those who look at these things in a different light perhaps than we do that we would be able to extend grace to them just as grace has been extended to us that you would help us to to study your word that we would be fully convinced in our own mind as to how you would have us to view these different things and thank you that even though we don't see the the miraculous things that the early church saw, we have something they didn't have. We've got your word written in our language that we can refer to at any time. Thank you that you've given us men who are able to teach it to us and to help us know how to apply it. Thank you that your spirit lives within us to accomplish all of those very same things. Thank you that you were the one who came up with the idea of the local church again, that we would be able to encourage one another and pray for one another and love one another and all of those things that we get to do with each other. Thank you that you've shed your love abroad in our hearts. You've taught us how to love other people. And so again, you've given us everything that we need. Help us to be busy about your business and help us to be willing instruments in your hand. Help us to worship you as we should. You're the only one worthy of worship. In Christ's name, amen.